I'm just loving, by the way, the superstitions. Here's two more. I've always saluted magpies. I can't remember when or why I started saluting magpies, but I can't stop myself, says Alex. And another one here. When I worked in a cardiac catheterization lab, we never had the open end of the pillowcase facing the door. If it did, there was a greater chance of the procedure going wrong. We only had two serious outcomes. The evidence is there. Wow. So thank you. Fascinating. It is, oh, one more. Step on a crack, you marry a rat. Um, by the way, great analysis on birth units in rural NZ. Thanks you, thank you, says Michelle, a retired rural midwife. The panel, it is 24 to 5. Uh, Peter you and Ali Jones with us. Now, a tough election, but nonetheless, an election it is in a democracy. And sometimes we do need that reminder that we are lucky to be, to be able to vote. What's life like when you can't vote? Does the leader, for example, have press conferences? What's it like in a dictatorship? We talked about this really briefly with Ed Amon, and you were fascinated. We discussed it further off air, and I thought, I want a round two on this. So with us is Ed Amon, who grew up under not one but two dictatorships in Pakistan. Uh, kia ora, Ed. Kia ora, sweet <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> You see, you couldn't do that anywhere, Ed. Um, <laughs> who were the two dictatorships? So I was born under the dictatorship of um, General Ziaul Haq, um, which was mostly of uh, the 80s. And then um, in my teenage and growing up years, it was General Pervez Musharraf. So uh, it was a good time. <laughs> Two formidable um, uh, regimes, I guess you could say, well-known around the world. Uh, so let me ask you this. Um, it got a bit of fascination with our uh, listeners. What's life like when you cannot vote? Well, it is. It is. I was thinking about this. It's being like stuck in a blocked toilet in a Westfield mall and nobody can listen to your screams. So it's like that. It's like uh, you can uh, scream and shout and uh, portray your dis, uh, uh, discomfort while living in the country, but nobody listens. There's no avenue to put your view out. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the kind of feeling that you get when you're living in a dictatorship. It's just so weird. So if you're in Pakistan under, say, Musharraf, and you say, I, I can't stand this policy and I'm going to affect change. Mm-hmm. What do you well, do? that is a very difficult thing to do. It, it comes with a lot of risks because in Pakistan, especially during uh, Musharraf time, there was some discontent in the Balochistan province in terms of uh, um, uh, some uh, autonomy, etc. But what started happening was the people started to disappear. And then um, obviously the, uh, the press or the journalists who were bringing up this question as well, they also just vanished somehow. And about 1,000 or uh, 1,500, we still haven't found them, those people who disappeared. Good grief. One final question before we go to the... Um, does the leader, in a, when you live in a dictatorship, do they hold press conferences or stand-ups? 
Well, yeah, this, well, usually most of the times it's uh, addresses to the nation. So usually they come on TV and they say, uh, my sweet uh, um, uh, people, and, and they just bring in their whatever they want to say. Whenever there are press conferences as well, uh, they are few and far between, but you might as well have a press conference with your pet dog because you have, the, the dog has in no choice but to love you. So that, that's what happens. You have picked people in the press that they will ask you the questions that you want to answer, and that's it. Good. It's quite yeah. a controlled environment. Ellie? These are invariably male leaders, right, Ed, and, and religion often plays a part in this too. Is it more difficult for women, for girls, that the a dictatorship is usually inextricably linked with patriarchy, for example, or is that, is that a bit of a broad brushstroke? No, it is an exact stroke that you have painted there. It's, it's, it's more like all 100% of the dictatorships have been uh, male, especially in Pakistan. And it is a very egotistical male-dominated one because, in, um, for example, in, in the uh, time of Ziaul Haq, we had the new Aurat March start, which, which you can translate as uh, the Women's March. And they were um, uh, beaten and put into jail. So it, it is a crushing of the, uh, the women folk of the, of the society as well. I mean, it's, it's quite an quite a egotistical thing. I mean, one of the dictators, which, is not, uh, which was not our dictator, uh, Idi Amin, everybody knows about him. Um, he, you, the dictators give themselves titles. He, he gives himself the title of His Excellency President for Life, Field Marshal Al Haji Dr Idi Amin VC DSO MC CBE Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea and the conqueror of the British Empire. So mm. it is an ego game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter. Uh, yeah, I mean, firstly, take the opportunity to acknowledge Najis Mohammadi, who uh, who she won the Nobel Peace Prize only a couple of days ago Ooh. for this exact thing in terms Ooh. of promotion of all freedoms and promotion of uh, women's rights, but also promotion of all democratic tenets mm. in Iran. And she's in prison at yeah. the moment in Iran uh, because of that. Uh, but just wanted to take the opportunity to acknowledge mm. uh, uh, Najis. But secondly, um, I mean, there's, the, I mean, the political nature and, and, and the progression that, that we go through society. I mean, as human beings, you know, we're always thinking of our sins and woes and what we do to each other. And, and, and you know, and, and there's plenty throughout history. And I guess structures are part of that. And, you know, it's no longer, there's, there's no longer a clear demarcation between the de- democracies and dictatorships. So across uh, the world now, there's an emergence, emergence of guided democracies. So let's take India, for example. I mean, India's our, you know, meant to be our biggest democracy in the world, but India's been under Modi for 12 to 13 years. You right. know, the US, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, uh, um, you know, Singapore. Turkey, uh, Turkey as got, well. Turkey. These are all got Philippines under Duterte. So these are all guarded uh, uh, democracies. And so the, the, the utilization of democratic tenants to therefore get themselves into power in order to then stay in power. That's the that that's the bit that's interesting at the moment, uh, uh, because there's no clear even democracy at the moment is not working for, for, for many societies in many countries around the uh, world. Yeah, kia ora, Peter. Really, uh, um, uh, some really uh, uh, interesting points there. Um, a, a listener asks, um, Ed, it's quite fascinating. Um, there was a lot of talk about New Zealanders living under a dictatorship during COVID. What did Ed think about that and compare it to a dictatorship under in Pakistan? 
Well, um, I mean, you can't have you can't have um, a dictatorship in New Zealand. I mean, you you're having a two party vote and a, a, a electorate vote. You will have a, a minor party deciding who will be the government. There will be coalitions in the government. I mean, uh, uh, someone like Jack came or you, Wallace, cannot survive in a dictatorship. So I don't think New Zealand is a dictatorship. <laughs> what, did, what did happen? I mean, another question was, in Pakistan during the time, were there any probing news shows? Was there the likes of Morning Report or a Checkpoint asking some really uncomfortable questions of these people? Would that exist? Yes, uh, they did. They did started to exist when there was some media reform during Musharraf time, but because he thought that uh, this way he could bring people on his side. But what happens is that uh, when people get a voice, they stand against dictatorship, and that's what started to happen. So he started uh, to rile against the TV stations that he created by himself. The same thing happened with Ziaul Haq time. Um, uh, at that time, it was ma- mainly the state channels, which would never say anything. But there were newspapers and magazines that were popping up. But they were living in a very harsh uh, reality where any time they could have been picked up by the army um, establishment uh, uh, tools that were, you know, in uh, people in in plain clothes that uh, that can grab you. It's it. it it's quite a hard thing to do to raise your voice. But there are always voices. Yeah. They work really hard, especially women in, in time of uh, Ziaul Haq time. Hey, great to have you on, Ed. Uh, really nice to, nice insights. Thank you. Hey, everybody uh, should and, go and, and vote. Oh, one, more, one, more, one more. Are you still there? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah one, um, so on that, being in New Zealand, uh, are you happy to vote? Of course, I love vote. I mean, I, I, we, me and my wife uh, went to vote this morning. And I danced my way in and did the vote. And I came out and said a huge goodbye to the voting people because I was like, fantastic, you guys are getting a good job. And I said, bye-bye. It was great. <laughs> Everybody should go and vote. Good on you, Ed. Thank you very much. That's Ed Amon there who lived under Zulhaq and Musharraf there, uh, two dictatorships in uh, Pakistan. What's it like living under a dictatorship? It is 15 to 5, the panel. We have Ali Jones and Peter you. Now, an article in the conversation posed a question, and it was fascinating, fascinating. If you have a baby, does this mean you can't be friends anymore with your child-free friends? Fair to say many might be nodding their heads at this, just a creeping distance between besties, one with children, one without. The New Yorker addressed this also, saying it has become us versus them. People with kids or pwicks, frazzled, distracted, boring, rigid, and can't talk about movies... And people without kids, pox, self-absorbed, entitled, and grumpy about life's inconveniences, even though life's easy for them. With us is Dr. Katie Wood, an associate professor and clinical psychologist at Swinburne University. Dr. Wood, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Great article. Um, Does like seek like, do you think? So new parents, they do turn to other parents who have similar aged babies, right? Yeah, I think that's the whole, um, definitely during this transition period, when you have a new baby, you're sort of looking for someone who you can share all things baby with, which I guess underpins the development of the mother's groups, traditional mother's groups, um, where you sort of can go and meet and talk all things baby. 
Yeah, which can perhaps, you do mention, it can create an in-group, out-group, and friends without babies could soon feel part of the latter. Yeah, I think that's a natural experience for many people that don't have babies at the same time, that you sort of feel like you haven't got the same interests, life's different now, um, the baby takes priority, and where you know the questions are asked, where do I sit, how do I fit in? Um, so that's what sort of reinforces this experience of the in-group, out-group. Um, and often, you know, people without babies are sort of feeling more of the out-group. Many a friendship, Ellie, do you think, has been not tested, but, um, well, um, yeah, tested by this issue. I, I'm kind of a bit flummoxed by this because part of me goes, this is life. This is what happens, you know, when, when people move to different cities or, you know, this is what life does. It changes dynamics and it ch- you change friend groups. What I found really interesting about this, though, was that comment in the article that friends without kids can feel neglected without fully understanding that it is not about them. Oh, really? I mean, I wonder whether this is a newish phenomenon in that it's linked to that me-centric thing that we see a lot now, that social media posting, boasting kind of thing that goes on. Um, Katie, would that be fair that that people are a bit more self-absorbed these days, so it's more about them than it is about, well, you know, this is life and my friends need to get on with their lives? Yeah, I think it can be definitely partly that. I think it can be also tricky if the um, the person without the baby is trying to have a baby. You know, that can be very confronting um, and they can feel often um, that it, being on the out group but not wanting to be. So mm. that can create a really internal conflict which can then drive the pulling away because you desperately want what your friend has but you also want to be a good friend but it's really confronting every time you, you know, you go to join in or be part of that experience. And I totally when get that. But for yes. for the others that that isn't yes. the case, you know, surely it's just grow up for God's sake. And this is what life is like. And this isn't, in fact, about you. I mean, isn't that a part of this too? Yeah, I think it's around working out, you know, what what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? How do I navigate the change in our friendship? And how do mm. I sort of have a conversation about that? So that, mm. you know, we're clear that when you say, oh, look, I'm just really, you know, tired, I can't catch up, yeah. but I'd really love to, not to take that personally, that that is absolutely about just being spent after a day mm. with a baby. Well, Peter, what about you? I mean, you know, it is fair to say it's been very, very hard for me to catch up with, you know, really old friends uh, having a child. But you, you've got a, a fairly large whānau there. What about you, Peter? I, I, when I was reading, I was thinking to myself, I don't want my six kids to read this article. And the reason why is because I, I fight every day um, to continue to have that parental sage um, um, role. Uh, and, and and I want them, you know, if they go through this journey, 
video. I want them to come to me as a parent and and, and ask for you know for for my advice, etc. So I mean, I think it was a great article and it's an interesting topic. But I was reading and think, oh, this is this is me giving up a bit of my my sort of parental uh, um, a role as providing that advice. And also, secondly, I want them to build the resilience as well. And and anything to do with resilience with my children, I I, I try to ensure that uh, I hope they don't read um, um, stuff into it because it just lessens my yeah. role. If that makes sense. Just finally, uh, Katie, then uh, just yeah. the, a tip, perhaps, to maintain those friendships because it is a, it is an issue. It's an issue for everyone. You know, you grow up, as Ellie says, and you go different lives. Is it just to sort of leave those lines of communications open? Yeah, I think it's really about just understanding it's a transition. It doesn't have to mean the end of the friendship. But it does mean, I mean, as you're saying, like friends, friendships evolve over time and this is no different. This is the transition. The friendship's likely to evolve. It's not the end of a friendship. You just come in and out of it in a different way. So um, hang in there and just re, um, I guess, develop what the rules of the friendship are, but trust that it can endure this transition. Nice to have you on the program, Dr. Wood. Uh, thank you. That's Katie Wood, the Associate Professor at Swinburne University, Australia, also a clinical psychologist. Eight to five, you are on Friday's uh, panel. We've sort of, just just for today, we've kind of kept it uh, fairly politics-free because it's going to be a big weekend and next week as well and possibly possibly in the weeks to come. But finally, some kids spend weeks, months, and sometimes years in hospital. Well, 17-year-old Lucia Murphy has spent over 3,000 hours in hospital and says it can be quite lonely. She's the founder of the Raindrop Project, a charity that aims to make feel kids less alone while they're in there. And she was the community winner at the Girl Boss Awards last night. And I thought, what a wonderful way to end Friday's program. Lucia, congratulations and kia ora. Great to have you here. Thank you very much, Wallace. It's great to hear. What made you want to start this charity? Um, so, as you just said, I spent a lot of time in hospital and it was quite scary and quite isolating. And it was difficult because you've got the nurses and stuff but they're stretched out they don't have time to be with you every second and I just wanted to give something to people and kids especially that could help them feel a little bit better in a scary environment yeah I can relate to a bit on a personal level earlier because one of my brothers uh he spent uh you know actually months in hospital Nelson hospital when he was very ill you know this is when he was about 10 you know so going to see him every day uh, after school taking homework how you doing it was quite an odd thing, and it was, you know, they had pictures up behind him. So I, I do resonate with this. Um, I want to know what, a bit more about what the Raindrop Project does. Um, so what we do, we deliver care packages to children in hospital. So things like activities, because boredom can be quite a yeah. hard thing. Um, also like nice soaps, because the hospital staff can be a bit itchy. And especially if it's an emergency, people often don't bring things like that. Mm. So it's good to just have some of our packages there. And then also soft toys, books. Um, we have volunteers actually that hand make toys, which is really nice. Um Incredible. Oh, yeah. This is wonderful. We've got a panel with us, Peter. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Um, Have you ever, have you ever thought about uh, um, going into the health profession yourself, in the well-being Mm. profession? 
Um, I have thought about it, yes. I'm still not 100% sure, so I am finishing school next year. I'm still not 100% sure what I want to do, but I've definitely thought a lot about it. Yeah. Ellie? Lucia, you're amazing. I think you you are inspiring for so many people. What I would really like to see now is maybe one of the richest people in New Zealand, perhaps Graham Hart, who has a net worth of about $12.8 billion, or maybe Peter Thiel, who's got about $5.3 billion. Maybe one of them should step up and actually help out um, this amazing uh, idea of yours. Um, it would be a drop in the bucket for them. Uh, and I think what you have started here needs to grow and needs to almost become embedded uh, in the hospital system. But I'd really like to see someone who has um, the funds to step up and support something like this. Uh, is there any talk of that? Do you need funding and, and uh, you know, additional resources, Lucia? Um, yes, funding's always appreciated because we would definitely love to expand more. But we have had quite a lot of luck with businesses sending us products. So we've right. got local sponsors like Marsden Books and then Ethik Anihana, they send us products as well, which is great. So how can people get in touch with you if people are listening now and mm. they've got product that they'd like to send you? Um, so we have an Instagram, the Raindrop Drop Project, and also a Gmail, which is projecttheraindrop at gmail.com. Okay, there's the challenge, right? Mm. Project the Raindrop at gmail.com. We are talking to community winner at the Girl Boss Awards last uh, night, uh, Lucia. It's about mm. the Raindrop Project, a charity that aims to make kids feel less alone uh, while they're in hospital. And it's a wonderful initiative because it's less known. Uh, Lucia, you've mm. tapped into something that is important for kids, but also, um, Lucia, very important for um mums and dads in wider far away to know that while the children are in there they do feel supported and do feel comfortable definitely it's such a stressful time i know for my parents both with my brother and i it was it was hard on them and they didn't always have time to think about the extra things they were just so focused on getting through the day making sure we were all right and it's nice to just have someone else who has a bit more time just to kind of help out with those extra things to try and make what is a really tough experience just a little bit easier you're yeah. awesome. You're amazing. Really, really cool to see. Well, thank you for being on the program. One final one before you go. Um, you you want to, you're going to keep because it's a great initiative. You're going to keep it going. You're going to keep the raindrop project. Uh, it's it's an ongoing thing. Yes, it is. Going to keep the ripple going outwards. That's where I got the name from. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, Lucia. Well done. I hope someone gets in touch who has um, a little bit of uh, uh, your putia there for, for you, a bit of <laughs> dosh there, uh, and indeed some really good product for those kids to make them feel less lonely when they're in um, those, yeah, those hospitals there. Uh, Lucia, thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Very good. Um, Wallace, can I just add, you know, yeah. as, as Lucia was talking, uh, Wallace, you know, the Mahatma Gandhi uh, quote came to mind, you know, you find yourself when you lose yourself in the service of others. Um, mm. and, and I think that's apt for someone like Lucia. But look at what she's been through herself. I mean, how many mm. people haven't been through what she's been through and still haven't come up with something as, amazing as, yeah. amazing as this? And here she is dealing with all of this stuff and still managing to do something like this. I think that's outstanding. Exactly. Mm. Nice way to end the show, eh? Uh, and not least because we've got a bit of Neil Young as well. You have both been wonderful. Ali Jones, Peter Fafir, more there. Thank Enjoy you. Enjoy the election, guys. Oh, we will. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> All what right, election? Yeah. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> All right, I'm Wallace Chapman. See you Monday, 3.45. Lisa Owen. 
and Checkpoint des Nix. Yeah.